Ready for your weekly tech fix? Want to know how technology sets us free? Well, get ready because here it comes. Tired of boring specials about history, science, and technology? Then get on your best headphones because you might want to lay down for this. A Sovereign Tech Special with the world's foremost anarchist technophile, Brian Sovereign. He has a huge, well, you know. And now, here's Brian. Mm. That's right, it is I, Brian Sovereign, the golden stallion of the tech world, here for another great episode of Sovereign Tech. I'm also a guy that, uh, interestingly, you know, little tidbits about me, I still wear a calculator watch. How about that? Uh, one of the two models still developed, one of them by Casio. Uh, but anyway, what that has to do with anything, I'm not sure. But here we go. We have a speaking, because that's kind of, a, kind of an older technology that's gone by the wayside. Really, watches in general have gone by the wayside, though they might be coming back. That's something we'll talk about in a future Sovereign Tech. But speaking of obsolete technologies and things that may be obsolete, uh, I have with me, this is very exciting, returning to Sovereign Tech, uh, I have Ricardo Obsolete with me, uh, Rich Dana, actually. Hey, Brian. Hey. <laughs> you are the proprietor, the head, the, the creator of, uh, of Obsolete Magazine. That's correct. Yeah, and I love Obsolete Magazine. Absolutely love it. Um, I get issues, and actually I get some of those issues. I get them sent around to some of the local comic book shops here. Uh, and, and a lot of people seem to really, really enjoy the magazine. But for anyone new, it's been a while. You've been on the show before. Um, it's been a little while. Uh, so if you could give me a, a, you know, an update on what uh, obsolete magazine is and what is going on now for obsolete magazine because you got some pretty exciting developments happening yeah we do um for people who've never heard of it uh they can go to obsolete-press.com and uh they can check out uh back issues we've got pdfs of quite a few of the back issues um that are available for free online um and we've got some books we've started branching out into publishing uh books we've got two books out now as well one's the best of obsolete the best of the first six issues um and another uh book of poetry by an austin poet named joe hoppy um and uh you know obsolete magazine sort of started as a response to the you know the idea that the magazine was obsolete and the underground newspaper was obsolete and um for some of us who are old enough to remember those sort of smudgy newsprint tabloids that were put out by all sorts of radical groups back in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s and even into the 90s, um, you know, there's sort of a special experience and a special connection to, to reading, you know, sort of radical ideas put in that in that paper newsprint format. And, uh, now, I mean, that's something that was like, really, the, these underground magazines were in a very real sense, like a proto-internet, at least, yeah, I mean, in the freedom of information that was out there, um, you know, obviously, yeah, underground is definitely the word for it, too. I mean, uh, but you can read a lot of, uh, I know I've read some some authors like Harlan Ellison, who would talk about the real power of these underground magazines, uh, as well as a bunch of other people, you know, from from 
you know, from like say the seventies or even before, or even into the eighties and nineties, you know, and these magazines were very, very popular. So you're, you're, you're making sure these things don't go away. Well, we're trying, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not easy. It's not even easy to find a, a newspaper printing company that will, that will print them. You know, we're lucky enough to be, I'm here in Iowa and, and we still have a small local printer that prints, you know, the penny savers and stuff like that. And he'll, he'll sneak in, you know, sneak ours in, in between big orders and he'll print us out three, 4,000 copies. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a, a lost, uh, art form in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, it, there, it's just kind of hard to believe because there was a time every city, you know, there was the Chicago seed and New York had the East village other, and, you know, uh, San Francisco had their own and there were, you know, the, every, you know, uh, sort of political party and, you know, the socialist workers party had the, the worker and, you know, uh, all these different groups would put out these magazines and they were all sort of slapdash and sometimes they were typed on typewriters and, you know, with lots of collage artwork and stuff. And they were very much in the zine sort of uh, uh, aesthetic. Um, and, um, you know, we're lucky enough to have uh, Mick Farron uh, write for us who, uh, if people don't know, Mick Farron was um, in the Social Deviants, which I consider to be one of the first punk rock bands. And, has has written for Hawkwind and Motorhead and other bands, but he's also a great science fiction writer. He was also a lot of people don't know. Um, he was the editor of the International Times, which was a UK underground paper that's probably the biggest underground paper in the world at the time. Uh, wow! Now I, I I knew of his work with Motorhead, but I did not know about the rest of this. Yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, and um, and so Mick is an old friend of mine from my days in the East Village in New York, and um, and he is just thrilled that we're doing this, and um, has committed to doing a, a piece for each issue. So we're really uh, thrilled, and they're they're sort of um, stream of consciousness, sci-fi, political diatribes, a la William S. Burroughs or something. That and they're they're really great, but. But it's, you know, I'm really honored to have Mick among the, the people. I think he kind of lends us a little credibility in terms of our historical context. Sure, absolutely. Now, you've got you've got a Kickstarter going on for this magazine. Is that is that right? That's right. Yeah, we um, we started uh, on a shoestring. We did a Kickstarter in 2010 then we did an Indiegogo campaign last year. Um, and we were able to sort of get, uh, you know, donations to keep going from issue to issue. And this time we decided to, you know, sort of go big or stay home. Uh, we're trying to raise $12,000 to put out the next four issues. Um, and we're asking for people to pledge and, and in return, they'll get subscriptions mailed to their door. They, won't have to, you know, look around for a stack of them in their local coffee shop or whatever. Plus, we've got right. all sorts of other awesome perks like uh, silkscreen newspaper carrier bags and T-shirts and, you know, all the usual great swag that, you know, people uh, offer for their Kickstarter campaign. So it's a little bit uh, quixotic, uh, you know, the hope to, to raise this much dough, but um, 
uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of people who love the magazine. We're hoping that they're going to, um, get behind us and, and pledge and, and, uh, and want to get subscriptions. So, um, yeah, people can find details about that at, at our website again, which is obsolete-press.com. Or you could just go to Kickstarter and uh, search for Obsolete Magazine, and it'll come right up. So, um, yeah, I'd encourage your listeners, if uh, they go to the website, read some back issues for free online. And if they dig it, uh, we'd love to have them pledge and, and be a part of Obsolete. We're also always looking for uh, advertisers, um, retail outlets, and we're also always looking for new contributors. So if they're writers, cartoonists, poets, photographers, uh, anybody who's making work, whether it be uh, nonfiction or fiction, uh, that you know challenges the status quo, uh, we're all about it. We'd love to, to hear from your listeners. Awesome. Yeah. And I can't recommend it enough to my listeners as well. Um, in fact, I will admit that some of my listeners, if, he, if they hadn't noticed in recent episodes, there's been a couple of slots opening up for uh, for advertising. And you will be hearing a obsolete magazine ad being played uh, on, uh, you know, through Sovereign Tech um, in the very near future. Actually, it might even start with this episode or the next so so they can catch up on that. Uh, but it is just great. I, I want it, you know, I want to promote it on my show because I believe in it and because I think it's such exciting stuff and such great, great content. And, you know, with some of the content, there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, it's got everything that I'm interested in. It's got science fiction. Uh, it's got some, just some great overall essays. It's even got some, some kind of some DIY stuff in it, uh, that, that are pretty, pretty interesting. Like any, any of those in particular that you found really good as far as uh, the do it yourself stuff in it, Rich? Yeah. Well, um, for people who may not know me outside of obsolete magazine, I've, I've spent a lot of years, uh, around the, the energy industry and the utility industry. And I've been involved in alternative energy technologies, um, since the mid nineties. And, um, so I've always been fascinated with the, you know, DIY solutions. A lot of the stuff that I grew up on in the seventies during the energy crisis, uh, during the oil embargo, you know, that was sort of the beginning of the back to the land era with Mother Earth News. Right. And, you know, there were always all these plans going around for how to heat your house with solar, you know, homemade solar panels and all this kind of you stuff. You know, I, I actually, I remember in, there's an issue of Mother Earth News, not that I was alive when this came out, but, um, but I remember looking into it, but there, there's an issue of Mother Earth News where they had, uh, they had an article where you could make an Opel, which was a car, uh, you can make an Opel run on uh on batteries essentially like mm -hmm. like an you know it was it was essentially an electric car and it had the full plans and everything amazing so yeah definitely uh yeah you're absolutely right yeah and there uh also people may remember or have heard of um uh the whole earth catalog or the whole earth review mm -hmm. and it was another one that you know we're we're sort of heavily influenced by that at obsolete it was all about providing people with the tools they needed for to, you know, to live independently and, and live, um, you know, free of the, you know, of, of the government or of, of oppressive forces or free of fossil fuels or, you know, it was all about supplying people with the tools they needed for freedom. Well, however, sure. however they defined that, you know? And so we, we try and sort of dabble in that too. Um, I had a, uh, an article about, 
our own here at my farm. We have a geodesic dome greenhouse that's made completely out of recycled electrical conduit. Um, and uh, we had an article about how to convert your vehicle, your gas vehicle to run on propane. And we've had an article about um, uh, how to build your own methane digester to use your, <laughs> your, your lawn clippings and your dog poop to uh, make burnable gas, you know. So we've had all sorts of uh, uh, crazy stuff. And, and it's something that I've, you know, I've written about uh, as a consultant. I've worked on seriously. I've done it sort of for entertainment value. Um, but it's a big part of my life. Uh, our alternative technologies are. And, you know, that's something for me that has always, um, has always been an issue as someone with an anarcho-libertarian viewpoint. Right. Um, you know, energy's a, a energy and agriculture, sort of the two big ones that, you know, how, how did we get here? How are these policies established? And, you know, we're using information technology that provides us with a lot of freedom, but it's powered by, you know, it's plugged into a grid that's very much not part of <laughs> a free market or a free society. And, and, you know, sure. Well, you know, I'm glad I have you on for this or because I get a lot of emails about, you know, like, okay, either like say crypto anarchy where, you know, how can I get this privacy? How can I, and everybody's just always asking these technological questions about how can I get free from the man, mm -hmm. you know? And one of the biggest things is energy is electricity is power. Yeah. Uh, you know, how can I get free from that or what's even going on with that? Most people don't even have a good understanding. Clearly you've got the background to have that understanding. So, uh, yeah, keep rolling. I, I think this is an interesting subject. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think what a lot of people don't understand too is, um, your it, your internet, your, uh, cell phone, all the things that are providing you with the community that allows you to find out about the free state project or to right. find out about an anarchist group in your area or to find out about what Occupy is doing. Um, you know, if the power grid were all turned off, we'd all be standing alone in the dark and, uh, you know, our independence, our freedom would start to suffer the minute the, you know, the, those lights went out. Um, so, so how, how do you achieve that? You know, I mean, there are people who have gone off the grid. Uh, a lot of people will do solar with batteries and, and I've installed a lot of systems for people who wanted to go that route. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a really big and tough question. And for me, it's the single biggest issue. Uh, it's, it, it provides a lot of fertile ground for thought experiments about how we get from here to a, to a truly free society. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, this is, this is something, um, I've mentioned this a couple times on, on the, on sovereign tech before where, you know, look, we have to deal with the fact that the internet was created by the government. doesn't matter what any historian or any libertarian says it was created by the government. The power system that we're dealing with right now was laid out and created by the government. And so what happens, how do we get away from, you know, how do we get the government away from something that it's so ingrained in? Mm -hmm. If you take my meaning in. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, 
you know, I've heard Douglas Rushkoff talk, and I've heard you talk about packet radio transmission, which I don't know much yeah. about. I, you know, I'd be fascinated to hear more about that. And it seems to me, you know, uh, in the last issue of Obsolete, we had an article about number stations and how people use shortwave radio to uh, transmit encrypted information that's virtually untraceable. Right. And the radio waves cannot be turned off, you know? Right. Uh, so there are, you know, there are obviously possibilities for completely independent systems out there, but, but, uh, but getting from here to there is tough. And, and, you know, it's as both of us being sci-fi heads there in, in any kind of, uh, visions of the future where there's either a utopian or a dystopian vision, um, you know, that's dependent on either the collapse of the energy system or the discovery of some sort of revolutionary energy supply, you know? I mean, very true. It's pretty key to to the, to the, the visions of the future as, you know, um, I mean, if you were to think of, if we were to be transported to a planet that had developed as a f- truly free planet, uh, uh, society that had the same resources that we have here on earth. I mean, how would you imagine people dealing with their energy needs? I mean, just as a, just as sort of a, you know, off the, off the top of your head idea. I mean, how, how do you think that would be? Would they, would they generate it in their own homes? Would they be district systems? I mean, what, what do you think that would look like? Yeah. Wow. Great question. Um, <laughs> the first thing, you know, I, I, I don't know if this necessarily answers it. The first thing that came to my mind was the, um, I remember reading about how if we actually colonized Mars, that we would actually want to have these polluting gigantic power plants because we would on Mars, we would want there to be a greenhouse effect. Right. So it would warm the place up. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, so th- that's the first thing that popped in my head when you asked that question. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I mean, I would, if I ended up on another planet, I guess if that's the, I mean, I, I, I probably want solar, um, you know, because it's just something that, that just seems so readily available, uh, you know, to, to, to access, um, now and and actually, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm curious to your answer that to that question though. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I agree. I think I think solar uh, electrical generation is the way to go, and I, I that's why I design and install <laughs> solar electric systems <laughs> right for a living. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, one of the things that has always sort of troubled me about the back to the land idea is that there's a big environmental component to that. And for each individual to have their own battery bank, and uh, you know, there's a lot of um, there are a lot of minerals. There's a lot of um, manufacturing uh, that goes into to building that system. And and you know, for each person to have their own individual power supply with the technology that we have right now is is not very practical. So right. I guess that brings me to a community uh, power system. You know, 
and and then we start to get into well is this socialism or yeah (laughs) uh, is this um like anarcho syndicalism uh you know it it starts to when it sort of starts to make some our more hardcore libertarian friends cringe a little bit um sure uh because you're all of a sudden dealing with the commons you know and um, right and that's sort of uh that's sort of where the energy thing is always has always sort of come apart i mean well yeah so- if if i real quick if i can um yeah i think that that's interesting because you know something about like i know a lot of libertarians just just want to come out and say it's like well if the government wasn't here we'd already have the electric car well i hope that the if the government wasn't here, that maybe the power system would be somehow superior because if everybody had an electric car right now, the power grid couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something to consider. And But the philosophy behind that, I think, is very interesting because the car is a very individual thing. And so if it's everybody having a car, but then it's a communal power system, the the two don't seem to add up. Like the communal power system can't handle the individuality it would seem. I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. Um, I think that's, that's exactly it because, you know, I spent some time as a, um, as a lobbyist, I'll, I'll confess it. I'll come right out and say it. I, uh, uh, <laughs> I got involved, um, around, uh, the turn of the last century in, um, uh, in an organization called the Iowa Renewable Energy Association. And, and at that time we were a lot of, um, sort of Mother Earth news reader, Home Power magazine reader, do-it-yourselfers, and sure, um, and uh, plus some Y2Kers at that time, and we got together and built each other's power systems, and uh, it was awesome. Um, I sort of started getting dragged into the policy realm because uh, advocacy groups are always looking for professionals to trot out that you know they call real people. Uh, to talk to right. <laughs> politicians, right? Sure. And, and so I got more and more involved in this. And pretty soon I was working, uh, doing consulting work for these advocacy groups. And, um, and then I was actually um, registered as a lobbyist for a couple of years. Um, and, you know, I would go and argue with uh, state and federal legislators about how you know, why they should support renewable energy. And of course there were Republicans who said, well, if it's such a great idea, why can't it stand on its own? And, uh, the, the Democrats would say, uh, well, if, uh, we need to tax the, uh, we need to tax the, um, fossil fuel industries to, to pay for this. And, and we would get into these back and forth things. And then, um, I would say, well, why don't we, you know, you put a tax for everything else. You've got a utility usage tax. Why don't we take a penny of that tax and put it toward um, people who want to have renewable energy systems, you know, to give them an incentive to do that, um, give them a give them a tax break. And unfortunately, you know, some of my environmental Democrat friends were the first to attack me and say that, well, this is a regressive tax. You know, poor people uh, have to pay for the same electricity that rich people have to pay for. And so a tax mm. on energy hits somebody who makes 
$30,000 a year or $15,000 or $6,000 a year, much worse than it hits somebody who pay who makes $250,000 a year. Right, right. So we've got not only do we have people using different amounts of power from the same grid, but we've also got people with different resources and needs that are that are right now um drinking from the same well, so to speak. Right. So it all it all becomes very very convoluted um and very difficult to get any group of your left right paradigm republican democrat legislators on the same page to to do anything and when they do it becomes incredibly watered down and nothing really gets done so i don't know if that really answered your question but yeah so if you've got somebody who has an electric car they're probably in an upper income bracket they're right. plugging into that power and they're um you know, if usage goes up, demand goes up, price goes up and everybody pays. So, yeah, unless they're charging it from their own solar power system, really, they're increasing the demand for those coal plants and those, new, you know, uh, natural gas peaking plants. And it's it's really, you know, I mean, it's only a small piece of the entire puzzle. Right. So, so really if, if everybody, if everybody had an electric car, a, it wouldn't be very green probably. Right. Um, and make no mistake. I, I love the idea of high efficiency green technologies. I'm not like against them per se. Um, and B, it would end up costing everybody a whole lot more, perhaps more than gas. Is that accurate to say? I think, I think that's probably accurate to say. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you, you know, an electric car is not necessarily the, the greenest option right. between the, the power that it's using, where that comes from, plus the, the amount of, uh, industrial manufacturing that goes into one of them. Sure. Sure. Now, I mean, you brought up the politics of all this. I mean, is there anything kind of going on now as far as, you know, with the political realm, what, what, what is, what is happening in politics? Um, you know, with, or you know what may be even more interesting right now, depending on which way you want to go with this, is I'd be interested to, to really hear more of the history of how we got to where we are as far as energy production goes, um, as well as to what's going on now with, you know, I, I mean, because politics does control whether we like it or not, uh, you know, does control uh, what's going on in energy production and, and energy in general. Yeah. Well, over the years, I've, I've, given a presentation a lot of times where I try and provide some context to the, the whole thing. Sure. And I go through a, a sort of brief timeline and I, I could kind of run through that um, with you now or some of the highlights of that if if you want. And we can sort of talk as we go along about how we got to here from there. Yeah, we could go over that. That'd be great. Okay. Well, you know, as people will know, the first settlers and even before the first settlers, the Native Americans, you know, used exclusively um, what we now call renewable energy. They used sun to dry things, to heat things. They used wind, you know, to sail, to, right. you know, to power things. Um, they used what we now call biomass. They burned wood or they burned 
uh, grass, you know, uh, or um, uh, things like uh, peat, you know, or store yep. basically on their way to being fossil fuels from being uh, from being um, biomass. But um, you know, it wasn't until really about uh, the eighteen late eighteen fifties that the first oil well in Pennsylvania um, sort of launched the the contemporary fossil fuel industry. And, um, you know, before then it, we really had an agriculturally based energy supply. People pretty much relied on forestry and, uh, you know, hemp oil. Uh, our old friend hemp was a big source of, <laughs> of lighting fuel. And, um, and also, you know, whale oil, uh, was a big, a big source of, of fuel. But, um, Sure, both of which now are pretty much illegal to get your hands on, right? In, at least in the United States, anyway. Exactly, exactly, and uh, you know the the whale thing. I can definitely see the need yep. to to protect uh, um, uh, species from extinction. Yeah, I, I mean that's obvious. But the hemp oil thing, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of politics uh, behind why why we're not allowed allowed to use hemp oil. So, sure. Uh, and and a lot of that had to do with the the mid 1800s. Um, you know, it all started with the ratification of the 14th, 14th Amendment that allowed corporate personhood to be established and led to um, the launch of the big first big corporations like Standard Oil. You know, um, right. Rockefeller started Standard Oil, and um, and that really, you know started the era of the robber barons, if you want to call them that, or the great industrialists, sure. if you want to call them that. Um, but it really changed the whole landscape of, of how Americans lived and how energy was supplied. Um, in the 1880s, Edison built the first coal-fired electric generating station, um, powering some residents in New York City. And that's kind of what we'd call a district generation system. You know, it powered one specific neighborhood, um, so that this was like the first time that anybody had like they could flick a switch right and something would happen exactly okay and so edison you know he was working right alongside the the vanderbilts and uh um westinghouse and all these other people and of course i know you're a fan of nikola tesla i am <laughs> tesla worked for edison for a while and you know they went their separate ways over ac and dc and yeah Go ahead. Oh, and well, you know, uh, basically Tesla won that one out on that war. And if it weren't for Tesla's um, AC transmission, you know, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't probably wouldn't have the, the kind of grid we have today. And, uh, you know, Edison was famous for going around uh, with a, like a sideshow and electrocuting dogs with alternating current to show how dangerous it was. Um, OK, you know, OK. Uh, the the direct current that he used, I mean, if you go to older parts of New York, they're still wired for that Edison direct current. Um, Tesla had Tesla had um, energy transmission technology that was high frequency that was actually, um, you know, carried through radio waves, and, okay. and he was and and so that was that was his sort of deal and, um, uh, yeah, he. You know, I've built a Tesla coil. I actually should put the plans for that in obsolete sometime. You can build a Tesla coil out of an old galvanized tub 
and a case of uh, long neck beer bottles and uh, <laughs> uh, some tin foil and a, uh, a copper toilet tank float and uh, some wire. And, you know, you can make the purple lightning shoot across the room. And, you know, I used to be able to turn off the lights in my shop and I'd turn on the Tesla coil and it would light up all the fluorescent light fixtures in the entire shop. It was, it's, it's pretty, ama- pretty awesome. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> And he had stuff that was way, you know, way beyond. You know, there are a lot of people, conspiracy uh, fans, who would say that, you know, there are free energy technologies that Tesla developed and things which are not not really true. I mean, you know, there's free right. energy, obviously. But, um, but he had some pretty radical technologies that were never fully exploited. So I would definitely agree with that. Okay. Um, but, uh, but it was... It was AC. It was the the usage of AC that allowed for the long distance um, transmission of power from big generating stations out to you know the hinterlands, like we have now. Right. Instead of everybody having a neighborhood generating station, which is the way Edison had uh, had imagined it. Okay. Um, but uh, okay, let's get back to the little timeline here. Uh, the end of the 19th century, diesel, uh, Rudolf Diesel was developing the diesel engine, and Henry Ford was developing the, the Model T. And, and both right. of these guys, you know, originally invented these devices to, um, to run on, on uh, either vegetable oil or ethanol, uh, you know, uh, alcohol fuel. And this was uh, a really big and revolutionary thing, and it really really ticked off um, John D. Rockefeller. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence. Rockefeller was was famously a teetotaler and supported the, the women's suffrage movement. Um, and a lot of his money went into passing prohibition laws. But what a lot of people don't understand is that under prohibition, as many or more um, on-farm ethanol stills were destroyed as actual whiskey still. So these farmers who are making their own ethanol fuel to run in the old Model Ts and the uh, 2N and 9N tractors that, that Ford was selling to farmers back in those days, they were unable to make their own fuel anymore under prohibition because ah. the production of, of uh, ethyl alcohol was, was prohibited. Um, see, now I hear that and I can't, I, I'll, I'll just straight up admit it that the thought that runs through my mind is that, okay, prohibition was all about stopping ethanol fuel and not alcohol. <laughs> well, again, you know, just, uh, truth is stranger than fiction and, um, sure. And can spe- you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you, you know, as, uh, yeah, right. conspiracy uh, theorist friends will say, um, sure. So, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm sure if it, if it wasn't anything more than a, a pleasant side effect of his moral endeavors, uh, that the fact that he completely and utterly smashed the ethanol industry um, probably didn't bother him a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, I, I could I could imagine that that was all right. Um, you know, I mean, another one, another interesting thing, and this is something I guess that sounds conspiratorial, but it's 
in my opinion, absolutely true. And there's plenty of documentation to prove it. Um, I remember seeing when I, uh, a few years ago when I lived in Florida, uh, that there was like a little, I'll call it a museum essentially there to a guy that in the thirties, I think it was invented the, what he called the, it was called the fish carburetor, um, for, for cars. And this, this carburetor allowed for significantly, you know, greater fuel efficiency. Um, and this carburetor was actually, it would, you know, they had, they put it in the ads, uh, in, in various, you know, catalogs at the time so that you could order it. And in fact, uh, a lot of companies, in, including ones run by Rockefeller, uh, you know, were saying, you know, no, th- this is all a scam. This isn't true. When it was absolutely true, it really worked. Uh, and in fact, they started making them again in the 80s, I think, for a little while. Um, and uh, the U.S. Post Office even got behind it and would put that, you know, would, would essentially not let the things ship. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they were quite real and they really worked. Uh, so, yeah, so these things do happen, you know, b- b- before any of my listeners think, whoa, this is, you know, some of this is going to be crazy town. Not at all. You know, these companies would suppress this stuff. No, that's, a- that's absolutely true. And, and there, there are more cases. I'll, I'll point out a few more of them, you know, in, sure. in 1922, General Motors founded a special unit that went out and acquired streetcar lines. And they bought up virtually every electric streetcar line in the country, and they destroyed them all. Okay, I've seen pictures of this, and where there's it, literally electric cars piled on top of each yeah, other, right? and they, they replaced them with buses, you know, gasoline-powered buses built by General Motors. <laughs> um, and so, again, here we're going, all right, well, is this the free market at work, or... Is this collusion between corporations and government to destroy, uh, you know, smaller companies that are providing something in the, in the public commons that that the the public needs, you know? Right. And and that's that's in my days in in the lobby. Uh, this was always where I knocked heads with Republicans. Um, they simply weren't willing to admit that. Uh, that they're probably the people who are their biggest campaign contributors, um, large businesses, uh, a lot of them in the energy sector, had gotten to where they uh, where they are through collusion with government. Um, and so, yes, uh, getting back to some of your you know your libertarian friends who say if government hadn't been there, you know they they might be right that playing field might have been uh, have been leveled and things might have been different. And uh, a prime example of that is, you know, a lot of people are seeing the wind industry growing now, you know, and wind turbines are kind of a big new thing. Well, you know, wind electrical generation from wind turbines started in the, you know, back at the turn of the century. And and by 1931, um, a guy named Harv Stewart patented the first wind powered battery charger and started bringing wow and started bringing electricity to farmers. Um, so all across America, there were farmers who had wind turbines that were providing electricity for their crystal radio sets and their, uh, electric lights and a few appliances. And they were living, you know, a, uh, a life that 
their electric consumption was based on how much electricity they were able to produce, you know? So if they wanted to have new appliances, they had to have more batteries or they had to have more uh, wind generation. Um, well, along about 1936, the Rural Electrification Act uh, was passed, and that was to provide farmers with power from the electric grid. And this coincided with the Depression and the establishment of the Tennessee Valley Authority, in which the government bought up uh, most of the uh, electrical generating plants in Tennessee and later around the, the country. And they started building um, these uh, rural electric lines. Well, they brought these rural electric lines out and they sold it very much uh, on, you know, um, reducing the drudgery of, of farm life without, without electricity, you know? And so every farm mm -hmm. wanted it. Every kid wanted it. Of course, they wanted to be able to listen to their radio shows, you know, just, to sure. Imagine the radio was probably to them like, uh, like the cell phone or, you know, whatever is now. Um, right, right. but, uh, but the requirement to getting hooked up to these new rural electric cooperatives, which were cooperatives sponsored by the government, um, was that you had to disassemble your wind generator. Um, you were not wow. allowed to get uh, government power if you had your own wind generator. And the reason for this was because they said if they were hooked up to the same lines and there was a power outage that these generators, if they were running, would backfeed onto the grid and could electrocute a uh, a lineman <laughs> well <clears throat> up until in the you know early 2000s when i was negotiating with the lobbyists from the rural electric cooperatives they were still right. saying that wind power couldn't be hooked to their systems because it was dangerous for their linemen now there's never actually been a reported case of a lineman being electrocuted by a wind turbine not since the 30s Right, and the new electrical generating equipment, uh, the the um, the inverters that hook the new uh, wind turbines to the grid are, have what's called anti-islanding, which means if the if the grid goes down, the turbine stops producing. So there's a virtually zero percent chance of getting uh, electrocuted. And but nonetheless, the rural electric cooperatives, which are part of the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, were lobbying against farmers being able to put up wind turbines and produce their own power. Um, and that, that goes on to, to now. The, the, wind, the wind industry was suppressed until, um, until wind power got profitable enough that large producers, uh, utility companies themselves, could start turning a profit by putting up large-scale wind turbines, which is what they're doing now. Right. Now, that was going to be my next question, because I know to some degree that that in some setups, if you, if you have at your home, if you have a, a you know, a wind turbine set up um, that you can actually sell back electricity to to the electric company. It's in pretty rare cases. Usually. OK. Usually what they'll do is they'll offer you a net metering agreement. Uh, this goes for solar, too, which means that you can mm -hmm. be credited. Um, Okay. So when the wind's blowing or the sun is shining, you're making more power than you use. You will get retail credit for your excess. 
Gotcha. And okay. usually what they'll want to do after after that, if you're producing more than you're using, either on a monthly or annual basis, depending on how they want to true that up, they will offer you what they call avoided cost, which is their cost of production. Okay. So, and they won't tell you how they come up with their number for their cost of production because it's a black box, uh, proprietary, um, it's part of their, it's part of their, uh, contract with their, with whatever state they're in. So they don't have to tell you how they come up with the number. But for instance, if you're paying 14 cents a kilowatt hour and you're getting retail rate for that and you make more than you're using, then they will be happy to pay you three cents a kilowatt hour to buy that buy back your excess power okay so, okay now that makes sense yeah. so but you know i'm yeah this is interesting because you're you're saying about how oh you know people were told that hey you know if you have this wind turbine hooked up uh to you know to to the to the main electric system that it's going to feed back it's going to kill alignment and but like you said now and i and i've seen them all over the place you know these gigantic you know football field sized uh wind turbines you know uh generating systems that that the state's putting up mm -hmm. uh, in, in areas but so now now they're not going to kill linemen how, how how does that work yeah <laughs> well see now these are considered uh generating facilities these aren't just you know some little thing these are actual power plants and okay. they're, they're governed by the same set of rules that any other power plant is. Well, again, like here in the state of Iowa, we're the number two uh, wind power producer in the country right behind Texas. Okay. And the whole northwest uh, quadrant of the state is you can barely get out of sight of the, the big 300-foot monster turbines. And, sure. Um, the majority of those are owned by... Um, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, which is owned solely by Warren Buffett. Um, so he owns nearly every wind turbine in the state. Now, Mid American Energy, which was owned by Berkshire, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, was the biggest um, opponent of wind power development in the state of Iowa, right up until the time they passed a law that allowed them to own their own wind power generation instead of buying it from farmers. <laughs> Okay. So as soon as they passed that law, um, with the help of our ex-governor Tom Vilsack, then they started building, uh, building their own wind power production, and now they're the biggest um, wind producer in the state. Well, oddly enough, uh, our friend Tom Vilsack, who, um, after not running for re-election for governor of the state of Iowa. Uh, worked for a time as a consultant for Mid-American Energy before being tapped by Barack Obama to be the new head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the same uh, same players. They just keep, uh, you know, keep shuffling the, the players around the board and, and right. come up with the same results. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, this again, this can't help but sound like because no, well, you can have you can we can do the wind power thing as as long as you know it's going to make make the big boys money and as long as it's going to be you know controlled. Um, but you can't do it if it's you know something personal. And and it does sound like 
you know, like you said, was it 1936 when this started? Mm-hmm. Um, that that they were just trying to get people dependent, you know, uh, yeah, and, exactly. and to get, yeah, and and boy, that that can't help but smack of, uh, you know, of of real life conspiracy of like the real thing, right? Well, there are people who will say that that they're, you know, rural America has always been the root of uh, all sorts of radical ideas um, that have been in direct conflict with, um, with the, you know, sort of in the vision of the industrial North, you know, and their people. So okay. yeah, this was what, you know, this was the true root of the civil war, you know, despite the, the fight to uh, free slaves and all that sort of thing was to suppress the agrarian South. And I don't know if I believe that or not, but, but it most yeah I'm up to debate on that too yeah yeah but it, I hear you. it most certainly is a fact that um, after the Civil War uh, that the USDA was formed uh, under the Lincoln administration and that they um, that the the goal how did it go I'd have to look it up but it was something like the USDA's mission is to um, free up rural uh, resources to service the new industrial economy. <laughs> so it really had nothing from the beginning to do with, uh, with, um, you know, helping farmers in any way. right with farming. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's really about industrializing agriculture and by industrializing agriculture and bringing the young guys off the farm and into the factory floor, uh, they're able to depopulate those rural areas and they're able to, uh, you know, you could argue that their people are easy to control. They're living in the suburbs. They're watching TV. They're working at a factory, and they're not out there in the woods, you know, hunting for their own food and coming up with all sorts of radical anti-government ideas. Right. And and I I think there's there's a dimension of that. I mean, I think it's kind of undeniable. Yeah, I agree. I um I'm I'm as listeners of the show know, I'm big into uh paleo diet and paleo lifestyle, uh as they call it. And a lot of people talk about this uh interestingly, and it's often not coming from libertarian circles, though you can certainly hear it there too, that before there was even like farming, interestingly enough, <laughs> that there you know, you couldn't like nomads that were hunter gatherer societies, you couldn't govern them because they weren't in like one place. But then interestingly, it can kind of evolve to the next thing to where, you know, if you get farmers away from the farm and into the cities, then you can govern them even better, right. you know, than when they're on the farms. Yeah. Uh, so it just keeps getting, you know, the, the, the system of control, one could say, culturally, just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, another uh, another interesting case of of the uh the players being shuffled around and and how deep this hi- the history of of these um energy um sort of uh i don't know family legacies uh, you know uh, is in 1942 um when the US government seized the assets of Union Banking Corporation um for for um financing IG Farben part of the Nazi uh, war machine okay um the president of UBC at that time was Prescott Bush, who was the grandfather right. of George Bush. And of all the, the funds that were seized, um, 
during the the beginning of the Nazi era. This is before we declared war. Uh, the only right. the only assets that were given back were those um, invested by Prescott Bush in IG Farben, and he took that <laughs> one point five million dollars that he had invested in IG Farben and he bought a Texas oil company with that. And, you know, and fast forward to, uh, you know, his, uh, the involvement of Bush senior and Bush junior with Ken lay of Ed, the Enron corporation and what happened with deregulation in California. And, and then, um, uh, Dick Cheney's energy task force that was, tasked with uh, reestablishing America's energy dominance. You know, these things, it's it's like we've got the same players from, you know, from the mid-20th century on, all, you know, setting the stage for consolidating these energy resources. And they've been doing it, and they've been doing it, and it, it continues to this day. Right. So there, there hasn't been any real growth. There hasn't been any real new players. If there were any new players, they've more or less been crushed, it would seem. Um, yeah. That, wow. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to, to think of. I mean, when you think about the fact that, say, like, you know, your average, <laughs> uh, I don't know, your average, um, I'll say, you know, electronics company, uh, like, you know, for five years, Sony's the big thing. Then for another five years, Samsung's the big thing. But in these industries, in the energy industry, it seems like, no, it doesn't change at all. These guys just keep running the show forever. Uh, and, and, and there isn't any growth. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's because of this, the system of government we've got right now, you know, which, which takes us back to, you know, how, how do we get there from here? You know, and, uh, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for non-participation, but, um, but your, you know, your energy, uh, your energy dollars are, are going directly into this big slush fund. And, and so I think people need to think really seriously about how they're, how they're powering their technology. Um, you know, how, how this is all going down. You know, when I was a kid, um, we thought, you know, before Three Mile Island and all that stuff, we thought nuclear power was going to be the thing. Uh, you know, if we right. read in sci-fi in the late 60s, early 70s, and we were just all about the nuclear power thing. This, this is going to be great. And Oh, yeah. Even even Ford. Ford made a car called, or they designed a car called the Ford Nucleon mm -hmm. that was going to be a nuclear-powered car <laughs> in the 60s. Yep. Yeah. And they, it was going to be too, too cheap to meter, they said. You know, yeah, uh, that was the big that was the big catchphrase. Well, you know what happened? The government again got involved. Uh, cost overruns. Uh, the no one was ever able to build a a really safe and, and efficient plant. And here we are. You know, I mean, we've never we've never been able to uh, to get that to where it needed to be to to provide the you know, to, to fulfill its potential. And is that because right. of, uh, government involvement or was the technology just not there? I mean, would those, um, would those containment vessels have cracks in them if they were built without government regulation? You know, I mean, uh, it's, it's hard to say, but, um, 
Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a tough area to talk about because, I mean, it gets into such hypotheticals. And I think if you want to, you know, especially if you want to, like, talk to, say, the average person about this, you know, they want real world results, you know, and they, they want to, like, know. And, well, and so it, go ahead. No, no, that's exactly right. And and, you know, I ran into this when I used to do some work for the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a, a think tank um, in D.C., and. There were a you know when when climate change took center stage in the energy debate, which is part of the reason I got out of it, just because I never felt like I was an expert on climate change. I was just a guy who liked solar power, and I I, exactly. I, I don't think anybody's an expert on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, and, uh, <laughs> but there were people there who were experts on it, and uh-huh. some pretty highly regarded scientists within the organization wanted to release a white paper on nuclear power and its potential uh, advantages for client, you know, uh, mitigating climate change. And there was a huge war within this organization between environmental environment, more environmentally minded individuals who didn't even want to bring up the subject of nuclear energy and those uh, more engineering science-based folks who said, well, if we're going to make a change, you know, everything needs to be on the table. So again, you know, we're having folks with economic interests and technological interests and environmental interests who just can't get on the same page about this stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, you know, I mean, some recent things I, I know I've heard about, especially like with the nuclear thing, is there's people who are saying, well, they stopped development of thorium, um, which thorium might have been an alternative that, that wouldn't have been as bad as what's used now. Uh, there's there's other things. And, and it's interesting, especially with the nuclear energy idea, is that it really is so new and that development. In fact, I remember there was I think it was a TED talk with Bill Gates where, you know, I mean, and, and everybody can take what Bill Gates says with a grain of salt, but um, but he laid out, he said, there hasn't been new development in the field of nuclear energy in 25 years, and it's only been around for maybe 50. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how, you know, there's people who are just instantly saying, no, 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 no nuclear energy, when it's not even something that's been, that arguably hasn't been thoroughly researched, you know, at, at all. Uh, to, to look at. So go ahead. Oh, I was just, I was going to agree with you. I mean, there are, there are small, you know, university scale nuclear power plants around the country, you know, that are basically sitting there making power. I mean, they're nuclear powered submarines, you know, the last few years, Warren Buffett's Mid-American Energy has, has been wanting to build a new nuclear power station in Iowa. And, um, they've been beat back by the environmental interests several times. And I just kind of said, well, you know, what are we going to do? Do you want to keep buying a new iPhone every year? Do you want to keep using more electricity? If you do, then we need to talk seriously about how we're going to make that. And um, yeah, these small it's a real, plants, you know, there's, there's some talk about doing these small district nuke plants. And people freak out because they don't want them in their backyard. Well, or they don't want a new coal power plant in their backyard. But this is the reality of energy production as we know it now. I mean, if people want 
renewable energy, which I want, and I want, I'd like to install it at your house for you. Right on. <laughs> you know, it's going to cost you more money. Um, you can't have both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's the interesting thing that always gets me is that, again, with the, you know, with a lot of the environmentalists, and I support a lot of what they have to say, um, but but they, you know, they, they want everybody using electric cars, but then they don't want to do anything that allows for more energy production, so like really serious more energy production. Uh, and, and it always, it, it's like, yeah, which way do you want it? Right. You know, you know, what, how, how do you want this to go? Well, a lot of people uh, uh, scoffed at George Bush when he said, you know, what, what do you want to do to defeat the terrorists? Go shopping. Right. You know? And yeah. And, uh, but then by the same token, the same people who, you know, pilloried him for such an inane statement are the first to turn around and go well we can save the environment by buying green dishwashing detergent you know? <laughs> it's like uh right. by buying a new green car you know i i i drive an old 1986 k5 army surplus blazer with a diesel engine in it that <laughs> i run on uh biodiesel made from recycled uh, deep fat fryer oil okay incredible and I, I pull into that thing it's full camouflage paint job the whole thing you know yeah. <laughs> and i'll pull into the local food co-op and park between two priuses and they will i will get the stink eye from the the birkenstock wearing prius drivers Oh, right. Just because it's an SUV right. when they have no idea yeah. that I'm zero emissions and, that I, <laughs> you know, that the, the, the carbon footprint of this vehicle washed away in the sands of time, you know, long before <laughs> their Prius was ever built. And, yeah. And, and it's like you cannot you, you cannot buy a new Prius every four years and say you're an environmentalist, you know. It's the no, way, no, you're right. Yeah. You know, uh, oh, is it? um Oh, there's a comedian. Uh, um, I can't think of his name right now, but he says uh, he saw a Prius with a baby seat in the back and he wanted to smash the window, take the baby seat and leave a condom and say, if you're a real environmentalist, yeah, yeah. use this, you know? <laughs> oh, that's good. I told, uh, yes. Stanhope. This is Doug Stanhope. Yeah, yeah. For that. Yeah. That's, that is, that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. I mean, so, so then on the, on the modern end of things, I mean, what, what is going on? Like you said, nuclear option, or I mean, you know, nuclear power seems to be something that's just deadlocked. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And so, so what's, what's going on now? I mean, what, what are they talking about? Because we see all these initiatives, you know, for like, I think uh, President Obama said, you know, we got to increase the energy output by 2020 or something. Um, I mean, what, what, what are people doing? Well, you know, there, there are a couple interesting developments. Um, solar has come down, uh, the price of installed solar PV, uh, electric generating solar has come down 50% in the last three years. Um, you know, we were installing systems for $12 a watt a couple of years ago. Now we're installing closer to four. Wow. So, and you know, that's not, um, that's pre tax, uh, credit, pre rebate, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so those, those numbers, 
you know, that's that doesn't have a whole lot to do with our government having incentivized solar, despite what, uh, you know, naysayers and fossil fuel av- advocates would say. That's market demand. That's straight up right. demand there. Um, of course, you got to acknowledge that it's a global energy economy, too. And and a lot of that demand is not in the United States. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of those panels are going to your socialist, you know, quote, socialist countries of northern Europe. Um, but they're proving that that uh, that solar works, you know, and, and America is starting to catch on. And right now we're installing systems that are grid tied. You know, they're feeding the energy back into the grid. Um, but there are companies that are starting to innovate and do some district systems Um uh, SMA, which is a German company, but they have a, a wing called SMA America, is producing a, 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 a thing they call the Sunny. Their inverters are called Sunny Boy, and they have a, the Sunny Boy Island, which allows for a whole group of homes to run off the same solar array and the same battery bank. So, um, you know, like there's an eco village here uh, in Iowa in Fairfield that is a completely off grid community and they share a wind turbine and they share a battery bank. And, um, you know, so people are looking at, at building and doing new developments that where they have community power systems. Right. And the bottom line is that until we, uh, until people have to pay the real cost of, of their energy, um, whether that's, cleaning up the smog from the coal plant or um, or burying the nuclear waste or uh, new batteries for their solar, the community solar system or whatever, people are just going to continue to use more and more power without really thinking about where it comes from. Right. So, you know, my feeling is that, you know, there, one of the things Obama wants to do is huge upgrades to the, to the long distance transmission lines. And I'm saying, why, why are we not doing district systems? Okay. And we're now we're starting to see that, you know, universities, colleges are starting to do that. And things like hospitals, there used to be neighborhoods and, and I don't know about, uh, where you went to school, but where I went to college, they had a, a central heating plant for the whole campus and it was piped all around. You know, they had one giant boiler that, sure. that heated it and, um, and now they're looking at doing things like that for communities. And when you're doing combined heat and power, where you're able to capture the heat from the, the generation of the power, you're able to up your efficiency massively. So, you know, you build a power plant, even if it's a natural gas plant that's burning fossil fuels, you capture the heat, turn the heat into something usable, you heat the local you know, aquatic center or you heat the city hall or or you heat the downtown area with the heat that's a byproduct of the electric generation and all of a sudden you've got something um, that's worth talking about. And, you know, it's going to be these efficiencies, these community systems that are going to be, as far as I'm concerned, are going to be the key to, you know, our survival in, a, in the future en- energy economy. Unfortunately, it's not going to be your off-grid folks uh, with a battery bank living in a, a Mother Earth News log cabin in the woods. We just right. can't all do that. Um, and no, a lot of people don't want to do that. 
Um, so we, we need to look at community-based solutions, I think, is really, is really where it's at. Yeah, now that's interesting. And I've heard, you know, I've talked to, I have some friends who are big into, you know, more of the Mother Earth news types. Um, And I mean, they're full on, you know, for the phraseology, they're full on anarcho-capitalists, but even they will admit because they've messed with this stuff with, with these, you know, like battery banks, you know, at their house and all that, that community solutions are the only feasible way for them to have any like real energy production. And I mean, not just energy production, but also, you know, just like food mm-hmm. you know, and then things like that. Uh, so all the way around, there seems to be kind of that need for community. Um, and, and that, that's interesting because it stands, it would seem to stand in stark contrast to anarchist ideas, mm-hmm. you know, to, to where it's all about the individual. Um, Yet at the same time, it seems like, well, if but this lifestyle that we have does seem to rely on some kind of community-based, um, uh, you, you know, production. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, do you know who Carl Hess was? Yes. Carl Hess, for listeners who don't know who he was, was started off as Barry Goldwater's speechwriter. He was a uh, arch-conservative. Uh, back in the 60s and um, when he stopped working for for Goldwater he sort of went underground and became really sort of one of the proto uh, anarcho libertarians uh, mm-hmm. of the late 60s early 70s and Carl Hess wrote a book called Community Technology and he went from being a Capitol Hill speechwriter to um, doing these underground community uh, sustainability projects in the ghetto in Washington, D.C., where they were growing tilapia and tanks in the basement of <laughs> buildings, and they were, uh, you know, doing uh, home-built solar heating systems. And um, I, I don't know if I just mentioned the book Community Technology, which was sort of the outgrowth of that. It's a very short little book. I think it's out of print, but you can still probably find copies. You could probably find a PDF of it online if people wanted to look. It's um, Carl Hess, Carl with a K, um, right. and uh, he was all about he was all about that. I mean, he was as anarchist he could be, but he recognized that you know nobody lives in a vacuum, and that yeah. it's important for a group of people together to get together and get their you know achieve freedom together. You know, as a person living in New Hampshire, you can totally grok that. I know. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So I mean, that's the way to go. And and unfortunately, of course, the IRS came after Carl Hess, and he fled into the woods of Kentucky or someplace, and uh, lived out the rest of his life as a commercial welder, I think. But uh, a great guy. There are YouTube videos of his speeches and things, and I'd encourage people to to check out Carl Hess because he was really a pretty good model for you know, how you can go from being a libertarian conservative to sort of embracing a community model of, of anarchism and, and, uh, you know, that agricultural thing and the energy thing are the two keys. And those were the, you know, the utopian societies of the, uh, the hippie sixties. That's generally where they fell apart when the crops failed or when they didn't have enough firewood to get through the winter, everybody headed right. back to the city and, 
<laughs> shaved off their beards and became uh, yuppies, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, whether it's in a, in your neighborhood and this is a thing, home power magazine has gotten to be sort of the, the voice of, um, small scale residential renewable energy. And it always has been, but it used to be a little more radical and they used to have a column called gorilla solar, which, um, basically featured systems that people installed without the permission of their utility company that backfed their meters and would run their meters backwards. And, uh, um, I always loved that idea. I loved the gorilla solar idea. Um, and now I don't encourage people to, to, uh, to do gorilla solar because the new digital meters won't record your, your outgoing power. So you're, you'll be feeding, the grid free power and you don't want to do that oh no no (laughs) don't don't do a gorilla solar system tied to your local utility company it'll be nothing but grief (laughs) but i do encourage people to there's no reason why you can't uh yourself or get together with a neighbor and and set up a solar array that is not connected to your utility company at all and you don't have to ask anyone's permission and you can take a few circuits out of your circuit panel, like uh, say you want your office to be completely solar powered. Well, you know, rewire it so that that goes to a battery bank and you've got one room that's completely free from the man. You know, you can start that way. Um, you can if you've got a camper or, you know, I have uh, for years on my truck used solar panels on the roof to charge all my, you know, cordless tools. So they were always ready to go when I went to a job. And, you know, there are tons of ways that you can integrate um, renewable energy into your life without asking anyone's permission and, you know, by working together with your neighbors. So um, there are a lot of options out there. And going back to Obsolete Magazine, you know, (laughs) go dig out some of those old copies of uh, Mother Earth News and the whole Earth Catalog from the 70s. And those ideas are just as good now as they were back then. Yeah, I would agree. I also just real quick, I'll point out that actually I know Mother Earth News anyway offers like, I think they're like 50 bucks and you can get like, you know, 30, 40 years, however long of issues on on cd and you can yeah. you know just pop it in your computer and, and you can do like searches even same with, which makes it even better yep, same with home power if you get a okay. dollar subscription for the digital edition you can tap all their uh back issues all the way back to the beginning right so you would definitely say that like solar power that's kind of the way things are heading that's the way that like, do you see that as freedom from the, the, the grid that the government has laid out? I think it's I think it's the one that's in front of us right now that's the most okay. uh, cost-efficient, cost-effective, and the technology is completely ready for prime time. You know, I mean, there's great equipment out there. You're not, you're not going to have to buy some crappy Chinese junk to, uh, <laughs> to do a good system. You know, you can, you can make a rock-solid system. Um, you can do a lot of stuff, you know, you can, you could build your own solar panels, you know, by buying individual broken cells or something. I mean, there are all sorts of wacky things online that you can do, but, um, but you can, for a decent price, you can buy a small array that'll, that'll give you some real energy, you know, some real 
independence from the electrical grid for sure. Incredible. So, yeah. okay, go ahead if you had more. Nope. Nope. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, so is it, this is stuff uh, I imagine, like you mentioned, Obsolete Magazine again. I mean, this is stuff you could find on Obsolete Magazine. Sure. Yeah, the, uh, the methane digester, heck. You can uh, build that with a couple of fifty-five gallon drums and uh, start <laughs> start throwing your dog poop and your uh, and your grass clippings in there, and in about four days you can fire your Weber grill with it. You know, <laughs> can't, go, can't go wrong with that, right? No, right, right. I I love it. Um, did, Rich, have you had, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? This energy topic is absolutely fascinating, and I'm I'm sure it's something actually we could probably even talk about more in the future. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to discuss as far as what's going on? That's uh, no, you know, I mean, I just would encourage people to do research. You know, um, right after scoffing at the Chinese uh, solar technology, I will say uh, you can buy an off-the-shelf. Um, methane digester um, that would replace a septic tank. They do that in China. They actually <laughs> use their waste to produce burnable gas. Um, in India, they use a rooftop digesters for food scraps that turn into cook- that it's turned into cooking gas. I mean, there's tons of stuff out there, and you don't have to buy a ten thousand dollar solar array to do something. I mean, if you're if you want a, a DIY solution, they're out there. There are just tons of them online. Um, you know, you just search for DIY solar on on uh, StartPage or one of your other non-NSA uh, mon- yeah. uh, web bra- uh, search engines, and uh, yeah, you'll uh, you'll find endless resources. Incredible. Yeah, I definitely encourage my listeners to do the same. I, I think it's, uh, you know, an exciting time because the information is right now. Anyway, the information is out there available, uh, you know, and pretty much for free a lot of times, yep. you know, to, to look into this stuff. And if it's not for free, there's also plenty of other things available to look into that. Partly so obsolete magazine again. Um, Rich, if you want to just just talk about your Kickstarter a little more again, you know, give us a recap on obsolete magazine, because I really fantastic publication yeah thanks um yeah again we're uh we've got a kickstarter campaign going through august 11th um you can find out about it by going to kickstarter.com and searching for obsolete magazine or go to obsolete-press.com again you can get you can read back issues you can uh, check out obsolete and see what it's all about and decide if you want to uh to pledge to the campaign and if people don't know they probably do by now but the cool thing about Kickstarter is if we don't reach our goal, you don't get charged. So it's not like I'm taking right. money for something that we can't deliver down the road because we didn't raise enough. Um, it's an all or nothing deal. So there's no risk in, in pledging. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'd encourage people to look at obsolete, um, contribute, write, make artwork, you know, do all those things that, uh, you know, keep us free. And, uh, if you have, questions about renewable energy projects i'm always up for for providing uh folks with a little feedback on on ideas um they can contact me at um uh, actually through the contact page on obsolete-press.com is probably the easiest thing to do um sure goes directly to my personal email account um so yeah i would just uh you know Love to hear from folks and uh, and hope they've gotten some good information from our talk today. It's been a lot of fun. 
Uh, I mean, just a, a tremendous topic, again, that, that, that spans clearly such a long period of time. Um, and at some points sounds, you know, it sounds woo-woo, but it's not. <laughs> it, it is what it is. Um, and the proof is out there, you know. And I'll put a lot of links in the show notes uh, to some of the things that you've been mentioning during this, uh, Rich, that, that I think people will find interesting if they want to look into it more. So, uh, again, Rich Dana, thank you so much for being on. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and uh, this has been Sovereign Tech, and, of course, I am Brian Sovereign, and we will talk to you later. This has been Sovereign Tech. Visit us at SovereignTech.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N tech.com. There you can connect with us, see more of what you've heard on today's show, and catch our podcast feed. Sovereign Tech is open source. We encourage you to share. Later, nerds. Nerds.